Welcome to Soul Food, a podcast ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. For many years, scientists were baffled by the mystery of the floating fire ants. When placed in water, an individual ant will flounder, struggle, and then eventually sink. But when fire ants band together, they form life rafts that help them to survive the Brazilian flash floods. As a unified raft, they could even travel for months before reaching dry land. An article in the Los Angeles Times summarized a new research study that has unlocked the secret of this natural mystery. After collecting a bunch of ants, scientists dropped them into containers of water. The ants quickly spread out and formed themselves into rafts. Each individual ant used its claws and the adhesive pads on their legs to grip onto one another. One researcher said, at first it just looks like a tangle of bodies and limbs everywhere, but the longer you look at the picture, the more you're able to distinguish between different body parts and see the connection. Then the insects use air pockets to form around their bodies to keep themselves afloat. The article concluded, the research said sheds light on how deeply social insects act together. It's almost as if they are a super organism. The individuals acting together create this awareness of the environment that no individual ant has. The New Testament often speaks of our need to be connected to fellow believers in order to survive and grow spiritually. Alone, we will sink. But clinging and growing together in Christ, we can ride out any storm. And that can only be accomplished when we are unified which will be part of what we're going to be looking at this morning. Verse 7, please. Now they have come to know that everything which you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me, I have given to them. And they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believed that you sent me. Jesus has said that he has revealed the the Father's name to them, And he has also called them out of this world. Now, the essential thing there is the words, you gave me. The rest of the verses are taken up with the attitude of the disciples, which is described in three different ways. They accepted, they followed, and they believed. First, they accepted and followed his words. Now, this set them in stark contrast with the other people of their day. Some, like the chief priests or the Pharisees, might have been expected to welcome a genuine divine revelation. But it's more than just belief. It's also acceptance. And there is a big difference between the two. You see, there are a lot of people today who believe that the Word of God is the Word of God. And they even believe that the Bible is authoritative, but they are still lost because it's one thing to believe the Word of God, but it's another thing entirely to come under the power of that Word of God. To receive the Word of God in your life is what the Bible says we're supposed to do with it. The Word of God is alive. It's not just truth that's abstract or does us no good to believe it. For instance, I believe that eating healthy is good for me. 
But if you try to take my taco salad today, I will bite your hand. But the scripture is living truth. And that's the reason it says in Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is alive and active like a two-edged sword. And why in 1 Peter 1.23 we read this amazing statement, for you have been born again, not of sea which is perishable, but imperishable, that is, through the living and enduring word of God. I have personally never met anyone whose Christian life I wanted to imitate that didn't consistently and seriously study and follow the scriptures. And if you need any help in doing that, just ask or text me, and I'll be glad to put some resources in your hands. Why else is it important to study the Bible? Because the Word of God cleanses us. When we walk through the world just in a physical sense, what happens? Our feet get dirty, don't they? When I was a kid, after a hard day of playing, I would come into the house. My mother never said, cleanse your heart and confess your sins. Although being mean little Billy, maybe she should have. But she didn't say that. What she would say is, take off your shoes and take a shower. Why? Because the world has soiled me and made me unclean. Now, in a spiritual sense, you can't look at someone and tell that because the dirt doesn't cake on the outside. It cakes on the inside. Just know that our hearts can become caked with sin. So in the same way, the world makes us dirty, and the only thing we can do is bathe ourselves in the Scripture to once again be made clean. Now, this isn't to keep ourselves saved. This is to restore the fellowship and the relationship that has been broken when we sin. Look at verse 9. I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but on the behalf of those whom you have given me, because they are yours. And all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. Jesus now prays for his disciples. But we would do well to go beyond the use of the mere indefinite pronouns there and to put them and to put ourselves in Christ's sentence. For only then will we get the full force of what he is saying. It is though Jesus has said, I pray for and then put your name right there. He also makes a distinction here between the little band of disciples and the world, meaning his prayer here is not for the world. Now this, of course, does not mean that God does not love the world, as elsewhere and in many places we are specifically told that he loves it. I do not ask on behalf of the world, says Jesus. Now, that term world has three references scripturally. First, it speaks of the planet. Second, it speaks of humanity. But the word Jesus here is talking about is neither the planet nor the people, but the world system. Consequently, he's not praying for them to transform the system, not to politically organize to try to change the system, but rather he is praying for those of Father who has called them out of that world system. In verse 10, it's also a point frequently made that there is community between the Father 
and the Son. What belongs to the one belongs to the other. Where it says all you have is mine goes far beyond all I have is yours. Why? Well, because the latter expression, all I have is yours, might be said of anybody. But all you have is mine points to a very special relationship. As Luther said, this no creature can say in reference to God. Then Jesus says something astounding. He says he has been glorified in his disciples and by extension us also. Between the glorification of Christ in history and in heaven, there is another glorification here on this earth, namely in his church. Through his church, his glory is comprehensible. The glory that was first seen in heaven, then in Christ's life, can now be seen in his church. Christ is glorified in the lives of his earthly followers. So it tells us right there that we exist really to glorify him. With all their failures and faults, the disciples still receive this word of commendation. I am glorified in them. Now, would it bring glory to God if one of his own who trusted in the Savior did not make it to heaven? Well, certainly not. This was Moses' argument when the nation of Israel sinned, when he wrote, Wherefore should the Egyptians speak and say, For mischief did he bring them out, to slay them in the mountains, and to consume them from the face of the earth? Certainly God knows all things. So why save people at all if he knows that they are going to fail repeatedly along the way? Because whatever God starts, he also finishes. We are all works in progress this morning. It's kind of like our kitchen. Over the past few weeks, we have basically gutted it out and started over. But slowly, it has been coming together. And it won't be long until it is glorified, if you will allow me that expression. I hope that encourages somebody today. No matter how disappointed you may be in yourself right now, if you are a Christian, you are absolutely assured of making it home. How is Jesus glorified in us? For one, he is glorified in us by saving us. It is his doing, and the glory must rightly and inevitably go to him. Now here Spurgeon has written wisely. When the Lord lays hold upon a drunkard, a thief, an adulterer, when he arrests one who has been guilty of blasphemy, whose very heart is reeking with evil thoughts, when he picks up the, when he picks up the far off, the abandoned, the dissolute, the fallen, as he often does, and when he says, These shall be mine, I will wash these in my blood, I will use these to speak my word, oh, then he is glorified in them. To that I give a rousing amen. Verse 11, please. I'm no longer going to be in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world, and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, so that they may be one just as we are. 
The next sentence, I'm sure, must have once again troubled his disciples when Jesus prays, I am no longer going to be in this world. But these guys are staying behind for a while, so keep them in your name. The significance of Christ's words comes from the widely acknowledged importance of the name to Jewish people. As we learned last week, to them, a name represented a person's whole personality and his character. That is why the psalmist said this, Some trust in chariots and some trust in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Today we might say some trust in tanks and airplanes, but we will trust in the character of our God, who Jesus calls right here, Holy Father. Let us not forget, he is absolutely holy. To hear most people talk about God today, you would think that the attribute most mentioned to him is love. But this is not true. Now, to be sure, love is a wonderful attribute that he has. And it's all the more wonderful because none of us deserve it. But even with that wonder, it is not the attribute most mentioned of God in the Bible. The attribute most mentioned in the Bible concerning God is holiness. So if we would glorify him, we must make his holiness known and allowing him to work through us as we attempt to live upright and dedicated lives. Jesus then prays for God to keep us in his name. This is recorded to remind us not only is our God a saving God, he is also a keeping God. He knows what we're in the middle of down here. He is fully aware of all our warfare and our temptations. That verb translated keep is a term that describes the primary duty of a shepherd, and it means to guard and to protect. The idea is to keep them separated from the world, even as they continue to live among their hostile and pagan neighbors. Does this mean smooth sailing? Well, speaking of sailing, we find one in that story of the disciples storm cross, crossing the Lake of Galilee. They had been sent across the sea while Jesus remained on the mountaintop to pray. But a storm had come. And Jesus, looking down from the mountain, had seen their little boat buffeted and tossed by the waves. But he then came to them walking on the water. Yes, he had come to them, but he also deliberately permitted them to go through that period of struggle. Thus, it is now. One day, Christ will return for his own. But in the meantime, we are in the world, confident that our great high priest is praying for us. We are not to be isolated like a bunch of monks, but Jesus promises us that we will be insulated from the world. Not isolated, but insulated. Jesus then prays that his followers will become one in unity. Well, how does that happen? Jesus built the disciples' oneness and a sense of security and unity by showing both in his own life and in his teaching the personality and character of the Father. The more the disciples understood the attributes and character of God, 
the more they could experience unity among themselves. A.W. Tozer writes, Has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other? They are of one accord by being tuned not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. So, 100 worshipers met together, each one looking away to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly ever be were they to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God and strive for closer fellowship. Also, please note that unity does not occur by the laying aside of truth. There has been a real push in the last 20 years or so of ignoring what the scripture says on certain things just for the sake of being united. We can't do that. On the cardinal issues of our faith, we must make a stand. And if that means that we are ostracized by the secular church in our society, then we have to be willing just to say, so be it. Now, and by the way, on non-moral issues, we do not have to agree. We're not a bunch of clones. If you want to mow your lawn on Sunday because to you every day is alike, then those who treat Sunday as a special day should not look down on you and vice versa. If you want to go waltzing, that is your prerogative. Although, quite frankly, most of us probably shouldn't dance. Not because it's wrong, but just for the sure aesthetics and for the sake of the arts. When someone asked Greg Glory if Christians can dance, he said, some of them can. <laughs> Verse 12. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me. And I guarded them, and not one of them perished except the son of destruction, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. That word destruction, or your version may say perdition, actually means wasteful. Now that may ring a bell in your biblical memory concerning Judas. For what did Judas say when Mary anointed Jesus with oil? The son of waste himself said, is not that wasteful? Couldn't it have been used more practically? The son of perdition could not understand the reason one would bestow such something of worth on Christ like that. Now, a lot of people, quite frankly, have a problem with this verse. They ask, did God create Judas just to play this part and then get cast into hell? Did Judas not have any choice in this matter? This does not mean that Judas was a mindless robot. He was a responsible person who acted freely. But God used that man's evil act to bring about his own purposes. The one doomed to destruction, as the NIV translates it, points to character rather than destiny. The expression means he was characterized by lostness, not, not that he was predestined to be lost. Both parts of that statement are important. However, Jesus says, the disciples need not fear, for Jesus had kept them so that not one of them was lost. 
And if attention be drawn to Judas, then it must be said that the Father's will was done both in the eleven and in the one, for Scripture was fulfilled. The reference to the fulfilling of Scripture brings out the divine purpose. There is a combination there between the human and the divine. But in this passage, it is the divine aspect rather than the human that receives the stress. In the end, God's will was done in the handing over of Jesus to be crucified. Let me also say, Judas also is not an example of a believer who has lost his salvation. Instead, he is an example of an unbeliever who pretended to have salvation but was finally exposed as a fraud. Did you know that in all of history, only Judas is said to have been possessed not by a demon, not by a horde of demons, but by Satan himself? The fact also that Jesus said, Have I not chosen you, and yet one of you is a devil, is further proof that Judas had never been saved. Well, thankfully, today's sermon doesn't end on such a dismal note. Look at verse 13 with me. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. Now, no doubt, we think of joy as something that should characterize the church and will doubtlessly one day characterize it in the day that we are gathered around the throne to sing God's glory. But here, here it is often the case of sour looks, griping, long faces, and other manifestations of a fundamental inner misery. Yet, I think, I'm speaking to myself also, if we truly understood and believed that we really are forgiven and are bound for that promised land, While we won't always be happy down here, there should always be that underlying current of joy pulsating through our lives. Why? Because we have been saved. (laughs) And that's cause for great joy. There is then a great gulf between the understanding that God accepts us because of our efforts and the understanding that God accepts us because of what Christ has done. Religion operates on the principle, I obey, therefore I'm accepted by God. But the operating principle of the the gospel is, I am accepted by God, therefore I obey. Two people living their lives on the basis of these two different principles may sit next to each other in the church. They both pray, give money generously, and are loyal and faithful to their family. They try to live decent lives. However, they do so out of two different radical motivations and two radically different spiritual identities. And the result is two radically different kind of lives. The primary difference is that of motivation. In religion, we try to obey the divine standards out of fear. We believe that if we don't obey, we're going to lose God's blessing in this world and the next. But in the gospel, the motivation is one for, of gratitude for the blessing we've already received because we are of Christ. 
And while the moralist is forced into obedience, motivated by fear of rejection, a Christian rushes into obedience, motivated by a desire to please and resemble the one who gave his life for us. Now, this leads to deep humility and deep confidence at the same time. It undermines both swaggering and sniveling. What do I mean? I cannot feel superior to anyone, and yet I have nothing to prove to anyone. I do not think of myself more of myself or less of myself. Instead, I just think of myself less. I don't need people to notice how I'm doing or how I'm being regarded. You see, sin is not simply doing bad things. It's putting good things into God's place. So the only solution is not simply to change our behavior, but to reorient and center our entire heart and life on God. Listen to me carefully at this point. The almost impossibly hard thing to do is to hand over your whole self to Jesus Christ. But it is far easier than what we are trying to do instead. For what we are trying to do is to remain with what we call ourselves, with our personal happiness centered on money or pleasure or ambition, and hoping despite all that to behave honestly and chastely and humbly. But that is exactly what Christ warned that we cannot do. Think of this. If I am a grass field, all the mowing you do will keep the grass low, but it will never produce wheat. If I want wheat, I must be plowed up and re-sown. In other words, I must die to self. Does that scare you? Does that sound stifling? Remember this, if we don't live for Jesus, we will live for something else. If you live for your career and you don't do well, it may punish you all of your life and you will feel like a failure. If you live for your children and they don't turn out the way you wanted them to, you can be absolutely in torment because you feel worthless as a parent. Now the remedy for the lack of joy here is obvious. It tells us what to do. It's on the surface of the text. Jesus says clearly, I say these things while I'm still in the world, so they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I say these things. This means the basis of joy is always sound doctrine. David said, the precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. Psalm 119 reads, I will rejoice in following your statutes as one rejoices in great riches. Back in 1962, Francis Dixon gave a sermon called God's Happy People, in which he based it on Psalm 34, 8, which he translated this way, Happy is the man who trusteth in him. None of them that trust in him shall be unhappy. Now, part of that sermon concerned the wife of C.T. Studd, who was a well-known missionary to Africa. Now, Miss Studd was an invalid and could not go with her husband when he returned to Africa for what proved to be his last time. And as he left, she knew she would probably never see him again on this earth. She knew that she might have to face years of loneliness. But she refused to complain 
and she refused to be cast down. Rather, she said, I will bless the Lord at all times, and his praise will continually be in my mouth. It was not easy for Miss Studd to rejoice in those circumstances, but she did. Dixon observed here, this is what I mean by having our thoughts established. Some Christians are only happy when everything pleases, when they can trace in some measure or think they can trace God's dealings with them. But others, like the psalmist, know that because he is their gracious and loving Heavenly Father who is planning their life for them, all things are working together for their good and for his glory, and so they praise the Lord and bless his name at all times. What Mr. Dixon is saying is, the consolation of the gospel is Jesus comes to us and says, Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Why? I bore the blame. I've lived the life for you. Now relax in me. Rest in me. Believe in me. Make me your righteousness. Make me your goodness. That's the reason why I came. I've given my life away that you could be holy, that you could be acceptable to God. Do we believe that this morning? As we finish up today, hymn writer Fanny Crosby went blind when she was just five years old. She lived to be 95. That means she endured 90 years of total blindness. Yet also, she did not complain. Instead, she resolved at a very early age to resolve this. When she was just eight years old, she wrote this. Oh, what a happy soul am I, although I cannot see. I am resolved that in this world, contented I shall be. How many blessings I enjoy that other people don't. To weep and sigh because I'm blind, I cannot and I won't. Don't you just hate it when eight-year-old blind girls are more spiritual than you are? Now, someone may say, but that was easy for Miss Crosby, for she was a child and probably didn't know the importance of sight. My case is different. I'm trying to support a large family on an inadequate income, and no matter how we try to save, we never seem to have enough. Another says, but you don't know my circumstances. I am... 32 years old and unmarried. My parents are dead and I'm lonely. I don't know what I'll have to do if I have to go this way for 30 or 40 more years. Another says, but I'm sick and I can't get about. My circumstances are just so hard. If we are speaking that way, we are indicating our practical ignorance of the sovereignty of God and are confessing that our thoughts are not really settled on him. Instead of this, let us recognize that he has planned those circumstances and look for his purposes in them. Let me say something about circumstances, which we often think are so bad. Circumstances, the very word means things that are without. The word itself is based on two Latin words, circum, which means around, as in circumference, and stare, which means to stand. So circumstances are the things that are standing around us. They are external. But where is the Lord in this picture? Is he without us also? No. 
He and the Holy Spirit are within. It is a case of Christ in you, the hope of glory. So why worry about what is without if we have Christ within? To know that he is within and that he is directing us moment by moment, day by day, is a secret of that supernatural joy that is our blessing as God's children. Let us pray. And Lord, only you can give that kind of joy. I know for the first 21 years of my life, I tried to fill that with everything else, and it always left me unsatisfied. It was always, Lord, putting water in broken pitchers. So thankful, Lord, that you stepped in. And everyone's life here who knows you, that you have changed us. You are changing us. And one day we will be glorified. And if anyone does not know you in here or anyone that will be hearing this sermon on the Internet, I pray that you would use these words, O oh God. Let them find just fertile ground in people's hearts and save. And for those of us, Lord, who just need to be encouraged and strengthened, do that for us, Father. Draw us closer to yourself. We ask in Christ's name.